It's February 9th, 2023. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 237 of Rook. Dear President Biden, is Iran not worth a single mention? I'm Gian Gomeshi, a lady from Toronto. Salam dostan aziz. Durur bashama. Dear President Biden, is Iran not worth a single mention? Look, I don't really care to weigh in on the success or failure or excess or brilliance of your State of the Union speech a couple of nights ago. We'll leave that to the cable pundits. You sounded very passionate at times and you covered a lot of territory. In fact, you spoke for almost 73 minutes. It was the longest address of its kind in history. And yet in all of that protracted oration, I set out to count how many times you mentioned Iran when speaking to your nation. How many times would you name check Iran and the current uprising and related dire humanitarian crisis? Well, the answer is zero. You mentioned Iran zero times. Oh, you did talk about guns and democracy and immigration, but not Iran. You did talk about Russia and Ukraine and China, but not Iran. Despite uttering 9,191 words, a record for a State of the Union address over an hour and 13 minutes, you didn't mention Iran at all. Dear President Biden, is Iran not worth a single mention? And full disclaimer, no one wants America to come in and save the Iranian people. This is not about American intervention or any old school imperialist intention. But we want to know that you and your team don't still intend to play ball with this murderous regime and that you recognize that the current theocracy where people are detained or tortured or executed for expressing any modicum of dissent is wrong and not in line with your stated appreciation of freedom and democracy. You see, we want to take you at your word when there are words and your administration has perhaps reluctantly at times, spoken about the atrocities committed by this Islamic Republic and the important movement for freedom led by young Iranian women and men that has been taking place for five and a half months. Seems like you were sympathetic. But when does the head match the effusive heart when it comes to your admin? Are you somehow still committed to shoehorning the nuclear deal in? We've already talked about your special envoy, Mr. Mali, by which I mean most of the Iranian community has pleaded that you replace an envoy that seems to signal there is no issue with the continuance of a regime that is murdering the country's people. But we hang on to little utterances and signs that we hope demonstrate you know the only path is helping Iranians by not enabling and dealing with the current dictatorship. But when given the chance to make even a basic statement about Iranians who have lost their lives in the pursuit of freedom, you said nothing. It's too conspicuous to be an act of omission. It was only a couple of days earlier that your wife, Dr. Jill Biden, with some hoopla, presented a Grammy Award to Sherbin Hajipur, a wonderful but symbolic gesture. When it comes to actual action, there is seemingly nothing on the American agenda. Dear President Biden, is Iran not worth a single mention? You know, there's an old saying that Americans only care about foreign policy when U.S. soldiers are dying overseas. Is that right? Because you seem to have really embraced that idea on Tuesday night. 
It's in your hands to definitively say that there's no chance for the JCPOA. It's in your hands to convince China to stop buying Iranian oil. It's in your hands to actually even enforce the sanctions that are already in place on Iran. We are witnessing the greatest movement for democracy in years in the Middle East, an historic revolution led by women and men and brave young souls, and it didn't make the cut to fit into your lengthy speech. Is it that your administration is comfortable with the status quo? Because it's unsustainable and a great threat to the Iranian people. Would that your speech had assured the world that this regime has to go? Coming up on this edition of Rook, tech entrepreneur and online energizer Kushiar Azimian in Los Angeles, writer and academic Dr. Ali Fatalanejad in Berlin, plus the Rook Roundtable here in Toronto. This is Rook, episode 237. Dear President Biden, is Iran not worth a mention? one i'm not i'm not some like anti joe biden mm-hmm. person you know yeah seems like a fine i'm, nice I'm, I'm not even one of those people who, who says that he's like senile and mm-hmm. you know can't finish a sentence or whatever but i, I was aghast I, I was i mean i think we have to call this stuff out yeah right it's like so. you do a you know a 73 minute speech mm-hmm. and you don't say the word iran not one. Too conspicuous. Yeah. Too conspicuous. I agree. It's a, you know, too too hot a potato for them. They don't mm-hmm. know what to do. Maybe we want to still do the nuclear deal. Better stay away from it. Like, you can't even say, can't even, you know, throw us a, a I mean, I don't even know what the state, state of the union, I don't know how, how, what it really means. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the fact that it, there was an avoidance of even mentioning Iran mm-hmm. is worrisome. Yeah. Because it it suggests that they're it's really not on the agenda to, well, even to want a, to do anything from know? a humanitarian perspective. I mean, at the very least, he could have expressed again, quote unquote, solidarity yeah. or said something along those you lines. You know what? He didn't mention the Turkey earthquake either. That's true. Which oh, is, really? No. Yeah. Uh, I was I was I thought maybe he'd lead with that or something. It was a very America centric, mm-hmm. not about a lot of form, but but you know, Russia and Ukraine and China were in there anyway. You know. I won't. Uh, I just did the essay. I'm not gonna. <laughs> but but I but I just. I mean, if for anybody who listens to this or watches it on you know Instagram or YouTube or something, thinks I'm like uh, you know. I mean, he's seems like he'd be a, a, a nice guy to go bowling with or something. You know, <laughs> no, really. But I. But uh, yeah. do you ever do bowling, bowling in uh, Iran? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. They have the bowling there. Yeah, but we don't have beer. What we have bowling. They ever had to have? They, do they have any peanut butter in Iran? <laughs> Oh, oh my oh, god I've seen that I, so I don't so ever want to talk about peanut butter and so Iran weird. in the same I, sentence these people haven't clued into this there's there's this weird thing I can't figure out if it's an act of omission or commission mm-hmm. because if it's an act of commission 
if it's if it's omission, if it's just somebody being dumb in terms of producing yeah. stuff in Iran right now, uh, it, there's an NPR team mm-hmm. in Iran right now. I used to work in public radio and public TV, and I would have, again, I mean, it breaks my heart to see this kind of stuff. They're they're in Iran in the middle of a fucking, you know, revolution. revolution. <laughs> yeah. And they're doing, just tweeting about peanut Photos butter. Peanut and, butter you know, in and, South Tehran. And really weird, you know, and, and so you kind of go, better this be ignorance, because if this is, you know, some sort of policy-driven mm-hmm. idea of like, let's... Uh, uh, I, I can't even explain it. It seems like a. It's like maybe it's like a nineteen a two thousand and eight idea mm-hmm. of like we want to avoid war with Iran, so we're progressive lefty journalists who want to show that Iran is just like us. But I mean, but the, even the, that, it's like, are, are we not past that yet? Sure, we just won a Grammy Award, mm-hmm. so we know you know there's some Iranians who are not you know. I don't know, barbaric animals or whatever the the racist idea of Iranians is, you know. But my thing is, even if we were in that 2008 mind frame or era or whatever you want to call it, there's prices on those peanut butter jars. At the Mm. very least, that individual could have pointed out the economic situation in the country. Oh, sure. Right? I mean, let's say, okay, you want to... Yeah, the story just to... I mean, I feel bad now. There's people listening going... What are, what are talking they about? talking about? Or, or, you know, yeah. But it, so so this NPR, National Public Radio, American Public Radio person and her team are out there, and she There's tweeted yeah. about uh, finding peanut butter in Tehran mm-hmm. in a kind of, they're just like us. They have peanut butter, like bowling. They have bowling, you know. Yeah. And um, and there's prices and the photo. This is this is the right. part that really. And there was gets no context. There was no. no information. It was just look at the peanut butter. It's just exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, As an, even if we are not in the middle of, let's say we are not in the middle of revolution, it's offensive actually. Is it? I, I think so. Yeah. I was. Uh, <laughs> you know, get some Skippy peanut butter in uh, Tehran. Kushiar <laughs> uh, Azimion. You know, we've actually wanted to get Kushiar on the show for a while, mm-hmm. and. Funny enough, we wanted to get him on the show. It had nothing to do with the revolution. He was—he's this interesting yeah. tech yeah. entrepreneur guy. Uh, he worked at Facebook for a yes. while. He's done a couple of startups. And so last year, we were kind of—we couldn't the schedules couldn't align. We mm-hmm. were looking to get him on. So then the revolution begins, and Kushiar, because he's got this experience and facility for um the social media space mm-hmm. he starts making these videos saying hey guys you know in persian but also in english i think mm-hmm. you know saying hey if you want to um you know use hashtags do it this way here's the most effective way to get something trending on on twitter and or facebook or instagram and and he becomes this um one of the online sort yeah. of gurus of yeah. of the revolution uh, and so to talk about that and also to talk about um, this this weekend, a couple of days from now, so that's Saturday, depending on when you're listening to this, Saturday, February 11th, this Saturday in a couple of days, um, there are global actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this, of course, coinciding with the anniversary of the revolution, yes. uh, the, the, the <laughs> Islamic <laughs> revolution. Uh, and so uh, there's, there's a bunch of actions around, happening around the world. Kushiar is helping to organize or support this big action that's happening in Los Angeles. So he wants to talk about that. Uh, he'll come up in just a few minutes. And then Dr. Ali Fatoulinejad, um, he is 
I, I really enjoyed having him on for the contemporary history of Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, great, a, a great academic based in Berlin. He's got a sort of yeah. European perspective on what's happening. Um, and uh, so I want to kind of zoom out with him and get a perspective. You know, he's covered revolutionary uh, movements and uh, and has some perspective on where he believes this revolution began. Spoiler alert, it's not <laughs> five months ago. He thinks this is dated back, back a, uh, three or four years. Um, so we'll, we'll talk to him and get his insights on where we think um, things are at. And I want to ask him about how he makes, what he makes of the regime at this moment. That is, it's, it's so confusing, the messaging mm-hmm. coming from the regime, yeah. the, the brutal crackdown and the executions and the detentions and then the quote-unquote pardoning Pardons. of and soft yeah. and cuddly, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Khamenei with the little girls. The and, and the, you know, it's a, it's a really strange um, confluence of things going on. So he will join us from Berlin in just a little while. Um, before we get to that, let's talk about, about a couple of things happening as part of our little Rook Roundtable here, uh, happening in the in the diaspora in particular um, in in the past week. Uh, the one of the big things mm-hmm. is is that tomorrow, so Friday, in Washington D.C., mm-hmm. there is a coming together of the of eight of the. Um, bigger names of the opposition leadership. Um, This has been touted far and wide. I I, I suspect if you're listening to this program, you probably know something about this, (laughs) uh, likely. So... um, uh, Masi Al-Nijad, Hamid Ismailiyoun, Ali Karimi, Reza Pahlavi, uh, Nazanin Boniadi, Shirin Ebadi, uh, did I get them all? Gonshif the Farahani, you said Ali Karimi, Abdullah Mohtadi. The Kurdish representative, yeah. And then I think that's eight. That's eight? Okay. So they're all, it's not really clear what they're doing, but they're talking at a kind of conference style with a moderator and and I don't think it's the debate. I think they're talking about how to keep the movement going mm-hmm. and showing solidarity, I suppose, yeah. by all being part of this. Yeah. Right? So the event is officially titled the Future of Iran's Democracy Movement Conference. So I guess it's a conference. It's actually going to be moderated by Karim Sajjadpour. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of things that have... Um, have come out from news of this conference, I guess, in terms of what's on the agenda, is to talk about the continued um, viability of the movement that's been going on for the last five and a bit months, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the common vision that these individuals have and their hopes and ideas for the future of Iran, and specifically how democratic change in Iran can actually change the world. Mm. Great. So some of the things that are on the Great. agenda. Yeah. I mean, I'm one of those people who thought, uh, good, finally, yeah. let's get them all in a room. And I posted something about that, and then there was like, you know, in almost a predictable, you know, I looked at how, how long does it take looking at my watch? There was like, how can there ever be unity if Reza Pahlavi is, in, is included or or the, the opposite of that? How yeah. can there ever be unity with these other heathens, only Reza Pahlavi? I mean, and it's just like, jeez, uh, they're not even doing anything yet. They're just hanging out in a room together. Come on, we can do this. We can pull this together. We can, you know, unify. Just, just be in the same room, and see if there's any commonality. Like, can we agree on anything? And then somebody yelling about that Kurdish guy shouldn't be there, and somebody else, you know, these two are leftist communi- communists. You know, mm-hmm. keep the communists out. Ahmed and Massey, or, or I don't know, whoever they are. Uh, Nazanin Barnaby, he's a communist. And 
So uh, there you go. <clears throat> For a community who speaks about unity so much, yeah. we sure as hell don't know how to show it. Yeah, well, I mean, with yeah, the we do, we do, we do, we do. But but uh, this this is good. Yeah. So let's let's hope it goes really well. Yeah, let's looking forward it to it. Foster some and it'll be live streamed. So I'm actually really excited sure. that they're going to be live streaming the yeah. entire thing. Yeah, it's like the World Cup again. <laughs> we'll gather around the live stream and watch the so so that so this is kind of a, a busy weekend because mm-hmm. there's that going on and then as I as I said about one of the reasons Kushiar Azimian is coming on on this program is to talk about this global day of action that's happening on Saturday mm-hmm. um, now um, this is happening in in a bunch it, it's interesting because a few places seem to be claiming this is the big the one come one. to you know so certainly in Los Angeles yeah. to give them their due they've been saying for a while now if you're anywhere in the world but certainly if you're in driving or flying distance mm-hmm. not too far away come to Los Angeles we want to have they want to do their version of the Berlin. the big Toronto one that we had or the big Berlin yeah. one yeah and um, I, I can only assume it's going to be huge oh, because sure. they've really been pumping this and there's going to be celebrities and all so that's happening in Los Angeles if you anywhere in the Los Angeles area. Uh, in Toronto, we've got a couple happening mm-hmm. here. We've got one in the early afternoon at the in Richmond Hill, uh, which is kind of the uh, the Richmond uh, Hill Public Library at right. one. And then there's one at four o'clock at the U.S. Consulate. Consulate, that's right. So there's a full day of activity yes. for Torontonians. Uh, a couple of demonstrations. I know uh, there's in D.C. Mm-hmm. There's one happening at the Lincoln Center, uh, and. Some of the big names are speaking at this, or the big names being these people who are involved in the conference. That's right. Um, then there's there's some big ones happening in Europe. Mm-hmm. There's Paris is a mm-hmm. is a destination for a, a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, Dusseldorf, mm-hmm. I yes. think. Where was the other place? London. And, and London. London. How could I forget my beloved <laughs> London? But I also know. I mean, I suspect. I know there's one happening in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. You know, at wherever you Montreal, are. Montreal, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. this it, is. It from uh, from Australia, you know. That's right. It's yeah. happening in Australia. Yeah. So wherever you are, look for a local uh, demonstration. I mean, don't you know? If, if you can't make it to the LA one, doesn't mean that you can't do something, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but this, uh, and it's important to, to 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 recognize that this is coinciding with something. See, if you grow up in the the diaspora, the anniversary of the revolution supported by the uh, and touted by the regime mm-hmm. is not really in your mind because nothing happens in Canada you know yeah. or it didn't for many years I guess there's some <laughs> certain certain agents of the uh, the regime that might be celebrating or something but but so it was kind of off my radar growing up I didn't know about this Bistodo uh, Bachman yes. which is the the, the revolution anniversary uh, it's only in recent years that I've uh, come to know this is this event that is, uh, you know, uh, abhorred by people who don't support the, the the current regime, but but touted and it's quite a, a spend, right? They put a, a lot mm-hmm. of yeah. they put a big, you know, it's it's like the it's like the the version of the, um, the you know. Kim Jong Un, the, the North Korea yeah. uh, tanks going by and everybody saluting them and and that type of thing, right? I mean, it's kind of one of those uh, days of celebration. So, so all these demonstrations that have been planned around the diaspora are a response to that, or trying to trump that kind of um, attention that is going to happen. Are there demonstrations planned inside Iran as well uh, against the? Celebrations, demonstrations. Um, I mean, as far as I've seen in the social media, uh, no. I mean, 
the the influencer people ask people inside Iran to please don't come Might out. Might be a dangerous day to do that. Yeah, right? stay yeah. at home because yeah. because I mean it's a day that regime like the the regime people they would be on the street. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's and they're going to try and exploit that and put yes. out images of look how many people yes. support the regime right. and yes. who knows how many of them they're paying and all yeah. of that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So this Saturday, mm-hmm. uh, be there wherever Absolutely. you are. Yeah. Will you be there? Pamela? I will be at both. All right. Actually. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Um, did you have anything more to say about uh, February 11th? No, nope, just I think you've covered all of it. Just to, for anyone who's in and around the Richmond Hill area, I'll be there and I'll see you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Packet will be um, <laughs> available to say hello. Yeah. Uh, and Shai, uh, you, you and I, before we went to air, we were talking about uh, we all watched that interview with Nasreen Sotudeh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard for me to watch these interviews because I always think of the questions I would ask. But, but <laughs> fine, Christina Amapur, yeah. But, but, uh, but you can't watch it without thinking about the courage of oh, this woman. Yeah. Unbelievable. They're, it's just amazing. Yeah. Like she's, is she even out of prison? No, or she's, no she's on medical furlough. <laughs> that, that's the thing. I, the minute I saw her on screen, first of all, no hijab. I mean, right then and Nasrin there. Nasrin Sotoudeh, the noted Iranian lawyer mm-hmm. who has been jailed. I mean, we did a big special on her, Free Nasrin, you know, two years ago or something. She's basically been in jail for defending women in Iran who mm-hmm. took off the hijab. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's been detained all this time and, and, and uh, uh, at times in scary scenarios where we were worried about her health and her life and... So she's out on a medical leave for she's now? She's out on a medical furlough. And does an interview with Christiane <laughs> yes. Amanpour. Yes. yes. Wow. And I mean, yeah. the things that she said in the interview, yeah. I, I had to watch it a couple times, first of all, because I just, there were well, moments where I was taken back by just the fact that she was having this interview. But, um, well, I mean, like I said, first thing is she's having the interview without a hijab. Um, she's talking about the death of Masa Amini and then, makes a point of saying it was a government killing mm-hmm. specifically she goes yeah. out of her way to say hold on let me just reiterate um then she talks so openly about the fact that iranians want regime change and basically chronicles this almost lead up to what led individuals to feel as strongly as they do and she was so adamant on repeating the fact that iranians want regime change mm. um and then i think at one point uh, amanpour actually asked her aren't you scared to be doing this interview mm. And I mean, her response to that just, I had goosebumps. It, it blew me away. And she was saying, you know, yeah, not really. And she was saying that my family and myself, we've yeah. constantly been under pressure, but. It's almost a redundant question exactly. for her at this point. Yeah. Scared. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I remember when we had a special episode on Nasrin. It was about two years ago. I guess so. Yeah, yeah and or more even. Yeah, know, and yeah. we received like s- letters that oh no, she's with regime and yeah, there were actually people yeah. saying, you know, what's the big deal? She's she's an insider. <laughs> what has she really sacrificed? And and it was like, uh, um, really, <laughs> like you know, yeah. her life, her law career, uh, yeah. you know, I and she's she's so razor sharp too. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, defending. I mean, it's a corrupt legal system, mm-hmm. obviously, but uh, she was um, sentenced to. Th- 38 years, I think. The la- that was that. the last um, yeah. sentence yeah. that she received in 2019. 38 years and 150 lashes or yes. something like that. 
Well, um, we will see. It's going to be an interesting few days. Uh, uh, I want to bring in our first guest in Los Angeles just in just a moment. I should mention that we now have our Patreon page mm-hmm. up. That means that uh, we crowdsource to uh, support what we do, these activities here uh, with Rook Media and um, keeping the kind of um, um, media message that we have here alive. So if you are a regular uh, listener, if you'd like to join us regularly, if you check out the podcast on any of our platforms or often are dipping into our content, we would love your support. Rookmedia.com. You can go there and press support us and it'll take you to the Patreon page where uh, there's a few different options. Uh, and you get some you get some benefits to being a, a Patreon member in the gold or silver or bronze category, which I think is, starts at 10 bucks a month. Um, you can go to our website or you can go to Patreon, right? Yeah, you can also search Rook Media on the Patreon website and it'll bring you right to our P-A-T-R-E-O-N. That's right. Patreon. We'd love your support. Thank you, you guys who are already our, our Rook members there on Patreon. We really appreciate you. Uh, thank you, Pega. Thank, Thank you, you, Shia. Let's Thank get to you. our first guest. My first guest today, I've been looking forward to this. He's an Iranian-American tech entrepreneur, a CEO, and co-founder of 310.ai, a machine learning for a biotech company. Kushiar Azimian was born and raised in Mashhad. He moved to the United States to pursue his education in computer science and received his doctorate from UC San Diego. Kushiar has his own podcast called Kushiar, where he shares his knowledge on technology, blockchain, biotech, machine learning, and finance. He has been very active since the uprising began in in September and uses his online presence to raise awareness about the current situation in Iran. And as I said, he's one of the high-profile Iranians helping to organize a major demonstration this weekend, this Saturday, February 11th, in Los Angeles and right now. Kushiar Azimian joins me from Los Angeles. Hello, sir. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm happy that after a while we got to do this. We wanted to do this a year ago for a different topic. We, uh, yeah. Well, finally. I, I, a year a year ago, the topic would entirely be you. Unfortunately, now it's uh, it's no, it has to be more than you. This is probably a more useful conversation. Just a just a quick uh, correction. I dropped out of my PhD program to start my first startup, and then I worked at Facebook for a while, and now this is my second startup, which is a, a biotech AI company. But yeah, I think it's very very modest and telling of your character that you uh, you opted to correct me about not finishing the PhD rather than just cruise along the Persian highway of being called a doctor. So uh, so that's it. It's very kind, very, very, very telling of your modesty. Thank you for that. Listen, thanks for coming on the show. Let me just, before we get to February 11th, this Saturday, which we have to talk about um, in terms of the focus of, of you and so many folks who want to make this a really a big demonstration in Los Angeles. And by the way, it's happening in other places too, which we'll talk about. Uh, first, I just wanted to ask a couple of questions about you because we haven't had you on yet. And uh, as you say, we were going to have you on last year and, and the, the, the schedules didn't uh, align uh, because you have such a fascinating story of what you've done in your life, including working at Facebook. Uh, tell me how you got involved in this revolution. Uh, and let me know if my reading of this is correct. You, you were, you are a successful young guy in tech. And when the global outrage and movement began across the Iranian community after the killing of Masai Amini, you stepped in and used your experience to help us 
know what is most effective on social media with respect to hashtags and virality. Um, and then you suddenly found yourself in a prominent place in the uprising. W would that be correct? Uh, I, I think for people who know me from when I was a lot younger, from when I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, even, yeah, in early high school, they know that I, I was very political back then in the school and my family was very political and I I had very I had a very deep problem with the regime with the authoritarian uh, religious regime with lack of free speech with everything about this regime I had problem and I, I I was active when I when I lived in Iran until 22 years old when I moved to US for the first few years I was still following everything about Iran and after a while, you come to a place and you see there's not much you can do. You get disconnected and you kind of kill it in yourself. After probably you fight back for a few years and after a decade, you just become a little bit of apolitical in regard to Iran. And then I think this happened to many people. So mm. you basically hide it deep down. And after the death of mass Amini, so everything basically it came out. How did, if we take a couple of steps back, how did your political desires or that activism, if you want to call it that, uh, express itself as a young guy in Mashhad of all places? I, I, I actually started very early and I don't want to take credit for this. There's nothing to be proud of or there's nothing to take credit of. Some people like, uh, I just came out of a very, very political family. Uh, and they always say they they got jailed during the Shastam and they got jailed during the current regime. So mm. they're like we're one of these few families that we got jailed over. Like mm. everybody who was in charge. I grew up in that family, and in very very early age, my first I, the the first time I got very deep into politics was during the Khatami's first election. Mm. That was a very very big turn of points to me at least back then there was a little bit of a hope for the for a country that was very deep hopeless basically we, back at then. that time especially with the the sort it's of 1997 actually 97 yeah. yes at that time with the what we now would say the fallacy of of reformism in the air could you have imagined a time when young people would be out on the streets publicly in Iran saying death to the dictator? It's funny, actually, back then I was a kid and I was going to a street and I was kind of like hoping somebody would say that, but it wasn't, it was a very different time. I, I, of course. I, I remember we used to go to all these protests back then for Khatami and I was trying to say, okay, we kind of want this guy, the Khatami, he's, uh, he's, he talks about reform and we kind of want to support him, but we don't want to support Khamenei. But there were people who were chanting for both of them the same slogan and said, I don't want to support the other guy. I don't think that's... Uh, and yeah, it was a very different time. Uh, the society, I think, it was a very, very different society. If you, if you compare the youth of 1970, 1997 to 2020, they're like two different species. You know, working in tech and um, start startups, 
uh, I can only imagine and uh, having had some experience with it now uh, myself is there's all kinds of challenges but the challenges are not necessarily putting yourself out there publicly um, and uh, I don't say this because I've seen any particular, uh, you know, um, dissension or, or, or uh, you know, trolling of you or anything. But, but what's it been like to go from a relatively focused um, tech career uh, in more recent years to, to being at the center of something in, in what, not the center, at, at one of the people who's um, online uh, getting a bunch of attention and, and trying to help um, in, in a very volatile situation with, with as uh, you know, a community that tends to have a lot of different opinions. Coming from the, that public tech person to the politics, mm-hmm. that I was a political person, but I chose not to talk about it in public very very uh purposely the that came with a lot of backlashes and if i had if it wasn't for people near if i had to uh make the decision based on my own uh preferences and just optimize for my own personal uh, life and goals i wouldn't do it because there are a lot of pressures, there are a lot of disagreements, there are a lot of angers, and there are a lot of, uh, and I, it, it's just not good for me, right? Yeah. At, at the end, I think at the end of this, I don't think it's good for anyone, frankly. I mean, it's it's, it's not good for it's anybody. part of the it comes with the territory, though. Unless unless you want to pursue a career in politics, mm. that I definitely do not want that, right? If you want to be the next president of Iran, or if you want to be. Uh, uh, I don't know, minister or whatever in the future of Iran, and this is your, then whatever, that's your job and you have to pay the price. But for me, it's just, it's just cost. There is like absolute, but we just have to do it, right? Uh, that, that's why I started with that call. I think it's, it's from Hossein Rona, who's an activist in Iran, that I wish I could just sit down at home and do my coding and do my uh, blogging and talk about machine learning and biotech and proteins and so amino- why did you why did you feel the the calling to 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 get so public about this then I think the calling is coming from a very 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 intimate uh, feeling that I was one day one of these kids on the street and in that day my very very exact feeling was I'm getting bitten. There are people who are attacking us. There are people who are taking everything from us. And there are risks to us going to the street. But one thing that we care a lot about, one thing that I cared a lot about at that moment, I wanted to the world to see us and pay attention to us. That was very important to me back then. And when I'm here now, I think I am that word that that kid was asking for the attention that day. And it's we just have to do it right because we to be this might sound very i i think we are responsible for uh, you're responsible for human rights for women rights for economy for terrorists for corruption for inequality for everything but to me something that feels more personal is freedom of speech mm. I want to make sure that that kid in Iran that has something to say, whatever it is, if it's a hijab or economy or corruption, whatever it is, that kid should have the right to say it. And if they silence 
her or him, it's my job to help him. That, that, that's why we're doing this process. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what it comes. That's a good segue. I, and, and honestly, I mean, one of the ways I, I hear you, I agree with you, I feel the same incentive. I mean, why, why, why am I doing this? It's not for, I'm not making any money doing it. I don't do any, any, it's, it's, it's because you feel something in your belly going, what is the way that I can contribute? And for some people that might be um, to construct something, for some people that might be to play a song, so for some people, and I think you're doing um, what we, the community, if I dare say, needs you to do. I mean, we, your expertise really did help. By the way, just back to that, before we get to February 11th, back to that post, um, your initial post in September, which was I remember seeing that and going, this guy, you know, this is this is really helpful. I mean, it went viral, and it was you kind of explaining, okay, here are the ways we can we can help our hashtags go viral. Here's here's a way to post to to get the most attention. Um, do you believe, Kushier, that that Iranians have done a good job in social media and heeded the learning curve that you helped to try to build um, into an effective online army over the last few months? Uh, yeah, or- I think a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of good jobs have been done, especially by the younger people. Uh, they're, they're very organized, they're very mission oriented, and they're working really hard, a lot of them. I think in last maybe a couple of months, we got a little bit distracted. And this is the February 11 is the time that we have to get the, the uh, coming out of the startup. The one thing that the startup needs to get right is the focus, right? You have very limited resources and you have a very, very hard and big goal to get to. You have to be very focused. You cannot just fight inside. You cannot take over like 100 different goals. You have to be very focused. And I think February 11th, which is in 48 hours, is the time that we just get the focus back. Okay, let's get to that. I, I And by the way, now that you've called yourself a nerd, uh, I... I <laughs> I'll take the liberty of doing so. It is very nerdy to do a 10-minute video on the importance of people attending a demonstration uh, in Los Angeles. It's, it's, uh, I love it. I mean, uh, most people just post, come on, come to the demonstration. By the end of your 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 video, I, I was looking for plane tickets to get my ass to LA as, as soon as come. possible. <laughs> well, we've got, yeah. you know, we have stuff going on in Toronto as well. Let me, let me say this. You believe major, major protests uh, major demonstrations have an important impact. Now, that may sound obvious, but there are literally people who have clapped back at me, who have come on the show or have spoken in social media saying, what is the purpose of these demonstrations? Uh, they, they're not really getting us anywhere. And what did they really have to do with, you know, the important stuff is inside Iran. So tell us why, first of all, you believe a major protest, major demonstrations are still important. Yeah, I, I totally get their point. I, I don't think they're off by a lot margin. I, I think they have a they have a valid argument. And I, I think one keyword in your sentence was a major protest. I think if we do like a small protest, it's not going to be as uh, yeah, it's not going to we're not going to gain by doing like ten thousand like small protests in everywhere. We we do need major protests, and what. First of all, in 48 hours, in two days, it's the it's the 44th anniversary of uh, the revolution, right? That's 
that's the occasion. We're going to say Saturday, February 11th, because if somebody's watching Saturday, this tomorrow, they oh, don't want, yeah, sure. you don't want them to hear two Saturday, days from now. Saturday, now. February 11th. Yeah. And I think behind all these arguments that why this regime has to go, that is the economy, the corruption, the human right, the women right, the, uh, anything, the, the, the religious dictatorship, the freedom of speech, above everything, is this very simple argument is simple question that do people of Iran do Iranians want this government? What's the approval rate of this regime? Right. And th that's that covers everything. Right. And you can ask that question very differently. You can ask, OK, are you happy with the regime? That probably over 95 percent of the people would say no. Hmm. Even some of the supporters of the regime would say no, no, th things are not good. If you if you ask if do you want this regime to go? Do we have to go through the revolution with all the costs and everything? The number drops a lot, but I I, I believe it's still over 70 percent, maybe over 80 percent. Right. We don't have that, that number. But at the end of the day, that number is the key argument. If people, if Iranian wants this regime to go, they must go. Right. If they want this, even if as bad as they are, if, if they want them to stay, they, they, right. they can stay. Right. right? And here comes the propaganda machine that is a core part of this religious dictatorship are called the Orwellian uh, government, whatever you want to call it, right? They work in two dimensions, basically. The first dimension is convincing people, especially the less educated people, that things are okay. Like if you listen to Khamenei's speech every time he talks about Dushman or he makes excuses, right? It's, it's America. It's it's the West, it's not us, like things are okay, and the rest of the world are also poor, and whatever, we're fighting, and we're strong, and we have the missiles, and whatever, like th things are good, right? That's the first part of the propaganda. The second part is lying about this number, right? You don't have a free election, you cannot conduct a poll, and you cannot go to the street. Like, there's no way that you show that yeah. what is this number, and their claim is some ridiculous number that they still claim that 98 percent of the people are happy with the regime right so i i think the core to every movement and the backbone of everything that we have to do has to be that this number we, we have to demonstrate how large this number is right that's the key part and the central part of this movement mm -hmm. And now we come to basically the 44th anniversary. They're going to spend all the money they have and probably the money that they don't have to bring the people in the streets. In Iran, in every city, they have been doing it for a while and they invested a lot of money. And now it's our job to basically uh, play our role. So no, this is our side. And the thing is, this is what I tweeted about today. This revolution or whatever you want to call it, one reason that has been successful in keep going for a very long time is it has two heads the heads inside and the head outside mm -hmm. right and they work as inefficient as it has been for some period of time they have been working actually in some synergy together right and that sure. i call one of the keys to the success of this movement so far and especially as of today that the pressure is mounting on the activists on Iran, like mounting like crazy. We have to do this even more, right? So when it comes in 48 hours, February 11th, 2023, we have the responsibility to 
even go to the street on behalf of them, right? And th th that's the key part. So there is this day that we're only 48 hours from it, and we have this responsibility, and half of our, half of us, not half of us, obviously they're a big, bigger population, they can't do anything because of the pressure, Correct. right? And, 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 and let me just add a, a quick sidebar to what you're saying. Um, because, I mean, part of the reason we're having this conversation is uh, I want us, we, our team here, want to do whatever we can to amplify this this day as well, February uh, the 11th, this Saturday. And, and, you know, I know the call has been to get everybody to Los Angeles. If you really can't make it to Los Angeles, there's things happening in different cities around the world, uh, in D.C., in Vancouver, in Toronto, in Paris, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, we did this series, Kushiar, I, I don't know if you ever heard any of the episodes, um, through the fall on our Thursdays, we were doing Voices from Inside Iran, where we would talk to young people, we would change their names, we try and, you know, um, ensure that people don't know where they are. Um, but we were speaking to basically a lot of young women and, and men in Iran who have been on the front lines of the demonstrations. And every single one of them, I asked every time, every single one of them, you know, uh, someone in Mashhad, a young girl in Shiraz, a, a kid in, in, in Tehran, does it make a difference to you when you hear about these big demonstrations that are happening uh, in Berlin or in Toronto or in Los Angeles? And every single one of them said, it's huge for us. The energy, the morale, the spirit it gives us. So that is why the why I, I go out on those demonstrations because uh, otherwise we're just doing it for ourselves in an echo chamber of our little community here in Toronto but knowing that it makes a difference to them in Iran is the bread and butter of it for me 100% 100% I started the conversation that said I was that kid one day and I knew exactly how important you don't want to be silent you think okay if the pressure is mounting on me in Iran I want somebody else to raise my voice that's extremely important and emotional for them uh, i mean we're gonna gain other uh, we're gonna get the population out and then we can talk to the western politicians and we can use all the other forces that comes with that but yeah the, 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 that's the main reason and at the at, at also we energize the movement from outside right we give energy to each other we it's it's good for ourselves too but yeah at the end that's the argument why do you why do you think that I mean in your video promotion for this Saturday you you make the case that you think it, we should there should be one giant demonstration for example uh, in America rather than uh, it happening in different cities why why do you believe that uh, I think one giant demonstration is going to be you, you want to show the solidarity you you want to show the large population right that that's I think very impactful by comparing to having many many smaller so you you basically want to show the world like you want to answer the propaganda machine that no look this is a big population and obviously we do not have as many iranians in u.s as we have in iran that's just like a so we do so as they bring their population into the streets of tehran and iran with all their propaganda and all the uh, money that they invested we need to have one big crowd right and i always argued we have to focus and if if you look at the history of this uh, revolution so far we gained a lot after those 
mega demonstrations the one in toronto and the one in berlin those two and the, the, there was one in strasbourg that that was more targeted but the toronto and the uh, berlin th- those two were very impactful and that energy probably uh, comes together in la better than any other city besides los angeles has the largest iranian population compared to any other cities in the united states Beside there's Orange County and San Diego that they're next to it. Beside there's San Francisco, Seattle, Vegas, and that you can just fly in one or two hours. Beside, I see all the pictures that people are driving from Texas today, hmm. from Texas, from Nevada, from Arizona, from like some people from East Coast, some people from Vancouver, from Toronto. It's inspirational. And it's inspirational. That, that, that is inspiration. It's more than just one person in this street. Now, let me say this again here at this point, because if somebody just jumped into this conversation and uh, there is something huge happening in Los Angeles uh, this Saturday, uh, February 11th. Um, we're going to put um, uh, links to details of it uh, in the wherever you're listening to this or, or watching this in the description. But if you can't get to L.A., uh, it is important that you get out wherever you are. I know there's there's two big demonstrations happening here that day in Toronto. Uh, there are demonstrations happening in various Canadian cities, European cities, basically around the world. This is another de facto global day of action. So, uh, and in D.C., in fact, there is one a big one at the Lincoln Memorial as well. So we don't want to dissuade anybody from from no, uh, going out if they can't make it to LA but but uh, no, uh, are you aware of the Zahedan namaz Jume? yeah so basically every week there's a namaz there's yes. a prayer, Friday, Friday prayers Friday prayers yeah so which has become a center of this demonstration for Baluchistan right yes and every week people uh, look and listen to all these videos coming from Zahedan and Baluchistan. And they're like, I, I think they're champions of this revolution. They go every week and they, the regime has killed more people in Baluchistan than any other uh, uh, state or cities in Zahedan. And they keep going. And, 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 and Kurdistan. They also keep coming out in Kurdistan. In Kurdistan. Yeah. Both of them they have been yeah. extremely uh, sh- showing extreme amount of courage. And they keep going back every week with all the risk. And they keep chanting the most radical slogans. They're not backing up, right? And I, I, I want to call them out. So this 48 hours of action starts in actually a few hours in Zahedan. Mm. So they're they're the champ. They're the ones that are leading. They're going to start in a few hours. We're going to have another Jome, another Friday in Zahedan. And after that, the same as other weeks. It starts with Australia, but the big, the big ones, there are three large ones in Europe. I want to uh, do a little bit of advertising for them. There one in Paris, in London, and in Dusseldorf. Those are the three really large ones mm-hmm. that are supposed to be happening uh, basically Saturday in Europe. And then it comes to US on the East Coast. You're going to have a really large one in Washington, D.C., in Toronto, and in Chicago. And then we're going to end it in Los Angeles, that we are expecting this to be the largest demonstration of Iranians outside of Iran, or at least in U.S. ever. And we're hoping that we get 
uh, non-Iranians to come to this demonstration. There's been a lot of works to bring Americans into this and the politicians and the celebrities and everybody who can just raise our voice. Do you, can you tell us anything about the plan for LA? Are you are you are you yourself speaking? Uh, no, I'm not. I, I I don't think I'll be a good speaker in those types of. I I think I always said this for for the demonstration. You do you don't want somebody to come as you said like uh, make arguments or like make a uh, math <laughs> formula logic. For you want somebody to give energy to the public, right? right? right. You, I think for those types, you need uh, somebody who can, yeah, the energy is very more important than the content for that type of environment. And we have, we have been talking about who should speak and like, uh, it's been a lot of back and forth. I'm sure, but I'm sure. The thing is, I, I think this is one of the th things that I'm trying to get along is we should stop focusing too much on who's going to talk and what's going to talk we should focus more on how many people show up and thank, thank you so the only thing that i care about is like we get hundred thousand people in the streets of la chanting and just showing up like whatever you want to chant and by but, the way when you have oh. enough people you know in toronto when we had eighty thousand people or whatever it was yeah. and uh it doesn't even really matter who's speaking it's it's you can't half matter. the crowd can't even hear who's speaking it's it's about the 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 impressive show of force and uh i don't disagree with you that 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 berlin rally with a hundred thousand people resonated across europe i mean uh, yeah. uh we need to keep doing that 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 kind of thing um thank you Thank you for Thank you. Um, coming on. Thank you for uh, promoting this, and 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 thank you for all the work that you're doing. And um, we we will hopefully have that proper conversation about your um, um, your your trajectory, your journey, and 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 your own per personal profile when we get the chance. Before I let you go, let me ask you this: in terms of what you have been feeling. And we keep talking about the paradoxical feelings that we go through in the last few months of, of hope and despair and and energy and fear and 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 excitement and 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 heartbreak. Um, but back to the kid from Mashhad who, you know, despised this regime and wanted change and came from the political family and came to America. Uh, how do you feel? um right now in terms of um your your dela chimige what what does your heart tell you in terms of um where things are going for a free iran i i think it's a it's somewhat of a shared feeling among among everybody it's uh, obviously you're sad for everything that is happening for all the executions for all the people who died you're living you're i mean scared for the people in iran uh, there is the anxiety, but at the end of it, there is a hope, right? And that makes things. I think everybody. I think everybody's life became more meaningful and beautiful because there there is a hope. Like before this, there was no hope. Like uh, all these feelings, they have pushed them down. But now they're and for my personal life, when when I left Facebook and I started this startup and I talked to my co-founders and everybody else, I said we're we're going to a really really big war. Right. This is this startup is not for making quick money. It's for we're building tools that basically our deadline is by 2030. We have to cure cancer. We have to build the tools that we can cure cancer. We can cure Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and we think we, and it's a really, really hard war that we're in the middle of. Right. And 
right in the middle of that, this comes this another war or fight that we, we do want to fight and we think we're responsible for it and we don't want to lose the focus on that. And it was very, very hard in the first few weeks and I was very reactionary for the first few weeks. Then I learned I have to be able to, I, I think a lot of the Iranians come into this conclusion that now if you want to help, if you want to contribute, you have to build this double lifestyle of doing your works and at the same time contributing and you have to assume that this is going to be the way it is for at least this is what i tell everybody for at least another year how it's do you a, it's want a it? marathon not a sprint pace yourself exactly the pacing I, I i think the pacing if one thing that we have to pay attention they are not going to live tomorrow right and we we have to learn how to like punch every day punch 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 every day every day and wake up and not getting depressed and not getting uh we, we we have to have a life right we have to have a life and we have to keep going and we have to pace ourselves and we have to be focused and we should st stop fighting with each other that's for sure um yeah. kushiar azimian it's a it's a pleasure to see you brother and thank you and thank you, and thank you very much have for a have a, a knock it out of the park on saturday we'll be watching we'll be out here on in in toronto and other canadian cities as well and 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 uh i'm i'm really hoping not just in los angeles but around the world this is a huge weekend for us it's it's, it's a big deal for the global iranian community that's the tone thank, thank you. you very much for supporting the voice Khodafis, merci. This is Rook, episode 237. Dear President Biden, is Iran not worth a single mention? Let us go to Berlin for our next guest. Dr. Ali Fatola Nejad is a German-Iranian political scientist with an interest in Iran, the Middle East, and the post-unipolar world order. He's an associate fellow with the American University of Beirut's Isam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs, where he is the author of a monthly brief entitled Iran in Focus. Dr. Fatullah Najad has taught in various prestigious institutions in the Middle East and Europe. He received his doctorate in international relations from the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London, and was the winner of a postdoctoral fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School's Iran Project. He is also the former Iran expert at the Brookings Institution in Doha and the German Council on Foreign Relations, and he's a frequent speaker at academic conferences and political forums and regularly contributes to leading international media outlets. And right now, Dr. Ali Fatalonejad joins me from Berlin. Hello, sir. 
Thank you, Jean. Thanks for having me. It's very good to have you back on the show. You know, the last time you were on, you were on for an episode of the Contemporary History of Iran, and that moment of speaking about the history of Iran predated this latest history of Iran, uh, uh, the last five and a half half months, which have been uh, transformative in all kinds of ways. So I'm grateful to have you here today to discuss the current state of Iran. Thank you so much. So let me start with something very general. Um, Ali John, how, how would you characterize the uprising today in Iran, five and a half months in? First and foremost, are you someone who uses the word revolution, uh, as some of us do, to describe what is going on right now in Iran? Actually, as you may know, I've suggested uh, five years ago, uh, after the nationwide protest um, at the turn of the year 2017-18, the so-called day protests, that uh, what we are seeing is the start of a long-term revolutionary process in Iran. Because for the first time ever, the lower classes that had hitherto considered to be the social base of the regime, or at least loyal to it, had taken to the streets en masse and, uh, you know, um, chanting slogans against the entirety of the Islamic Republic, against all components, be it the clerical component, that is the, uh, you know, the ruling Shia clergy, or the military, that is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and for the first time ever also against both factions of the political establishment. So not only the hardliners, but also the reformists were the target of popular rage. Right. And we had the continuation of those protests in November 2019. And this time around, since last September, we have, uh, I think, uh, Iran fully engulfed in the revolutionary process because for the first time ever, we see different social classes participating in the protests. It's, um, it's by the way, when somebody says, uh, <laughs> and no disrespect to you because I, I defer to you on subjects like this, but when somebody says, uh, yeah, the revolution's actually been going on for decades or, or you know, it's it's been coming for a long time, it always feels like a bit of a cop-out to me because it's like, uh, um, yes, we know it's been bubbling, but I like where you've positioned it as, ha- as have a few people. Some people date it from Aubon a little bit later, but the point being that, 10 years ago or during the green movement or certainly before that you weren't likely to hear chants of death to the dictator in the streets of iran or uh, a an overt call for regime change and you're saying starting about five years ago that was the turning point yes i believe so i mean the green movement of 2009 was largely an urban uh, middle-class phenomenon but of course there were also more radical elements and also people some of the people were even chanting death to the dictator back then but uh, analytically for me to say this was the you know the start of a long-term revolution process five years ago with the day protests is because the lower classes you know the social base of the islamic republic had taken to the streets en masse you know according to figures of the interior ministry there were 50,000 people participating in it in an uh, unprecedented geographical expansion engulfing 100 cities and towns in all corners of the country. And with the Arban protests of, of November 2019, you had 200,000 uh, pro, uh, you know, uh, protesters, according, again, uh, to the same interior ministry. And although both of them were triggered by socioeconomic uh, grievances, they turned swiftly political and anti-regime. 
And back then, there was the hope during the Green Movement that there was some reforms possible within the system of the Islamic Republic. But uh, as you know, because of various political and economic developments over the last decade, uh, there are very few people in Iran who still believe uh, in the route, in the path of uh, reform. You know, I appreciate when someone like yourself, an academic, comes on and gives us a long view, uh, a macro view, zooms out, if you will, because um, my question was, how do you feel, how would you characterize the uprising five and a half months in? It's, it almost intimates the suggestion that um, we see it the way a lot of f- folks do see this, which is almost like day trading. Like, how are we doing today? Is is the revolution still happening? Is it better or worse than it was yesterday? And I And should I suppose, based on what you're saying, that you see this as a continuum and that we shouldn't get caught up in whether this week there's enough people on the streets or somebody's been executed, but we, but basically this is going in one direction? Yes, I think the direction is very clear. The direction is a revolutionary one because the Islamic Republic uh, cannot solve the problems of various social groups in Iran. We've seen thousands of protests over the last few years in 2021 and 2022. We had 4,000 protests respectively from a variety of social groups. So there is no answers, no policy answers from the regime. So there is a stark disconnect from, you know, between state and society. And uh, to your question, revolutionary revolutionary processes are also characterized by uh, periods of relative calm and relative uproar. So uh, mid-September till uh, mid-November, we had a lot of street protests. We had a relative you know, reduction of number of street protests since uh, between uh, mid-November and the end of last year. And this year, we have very, very few, uh, almost zero street protests. But this is also due to a combination of repression, but also uh, of uh, the seasonal winter. And I believe that we're going to see a reemergence uh, of street protests because, as you know, the economic situation is very bad. We have a historical uh, you know, loss of value of the national currency. We have more than 50% inflation. And as we know from both the day and the Avon protests, uh, you know, uh, protests driven by socioeconomic grievances can turn uh, you know, uh, political very swiftly. So I expect this uh, process to continue. And um, uh, I was saying this on on Monday's program, but uh, um, the defiance has not uh, at all stopped in Iran in terms of the continuation of defiance being expressed in other ways. It may not be mass street protests, although we do still see that obviously in Kurdistan or Zahedan, et cetera. But, but, But we still see the graffiti every day on the walls. We see the defiance of women going about their daily business without a hijab on. We see um, uh, the social media activity. We see the chanting at night from the from the windows. So I mean, all of this is is still in play. Um, how do we interpret in this moment, in this week, the mixed messages coming from the regime at present? On the one hand, as you talked about the brutal crackdown, the executions, the killing of children, the detention and torture of innocent protesters, the playbook that we've seen over and over again. On the other, scare the shit out of people so that they stop their uprising. On the other hand, there seems to be this new 
PR strategy of quote unquote pardoning and releasing prisoners and acting as if they're somehow moderating their actions. Is this a bunch of mullahs who are masterfully navigating this crisis as they have in the past to stay in power? Or is this a regime on the run and scrambling to do whatever it can to stay alive? Uh, on your first question, you're totally right. There are various forms of resistance, and those various forms of daily resistance are still continuing. And uh, concerning the street protests, we still see, um, you know, mass protests or larger protests after Friday prayers in Zahedan, in the capital city of Sistan, Baluchistan, in the southeast of the country. And do not forget, strikes by the labor movement in important sectors of the economy are also very much important when it comes to, you know, the, the possibility of success of a revolutionary process. And strikes do continue. Um, uh, as to your uh, other question, uh, so the pardoning, I think, um, you know, this kind of pardoning, of course, is a lot of PR uh, for the regime, and this does not include the political prisoners in Iran. And uh, also, um, we have seen uh, the kind of, um, you know, uh, hack, uh, hacktivists leak, uh, you know, just uh, a week ago. Uh, that showed that there are some re-education programs, there are some prisoners um, who are, you know, uh, taught how to shoot at protesters, for instance. So this kind of, you know, freeing prisoners could also be used by the regime uh, to quell a street protest at a time when, um, you know, importing militias, for instance, from the Middle East, um, it may be a difficult thing for the regime to do because, um, you know, it, uh, you know, those militias would need U.S. dollars to be paid, and um, there is tr uh, pressure from the U.S. government on the Iraqi government not to allow, um, you know, uh, the transfer of U.S. dollars uh, into Iran. So I think those uh, those are you know valid points of speculation here. And uh, but the headline that was uh, somehow also replicated by some of the Western media that. You know, the regime has now pardoned 10,000 people. This is, uh, you know, not uh, the real issue here because the political prisoners are still there. Uh, the main uh, probably uh, figures of the protest, uh, of the recent protests, uh, will also still be in jail. If you were to speculate further, um, would you, I mean, we have a little bit of information about this. We hear about um, intra-regime squabbles and, and, and disagreements, and we see the what we formerly called the, the reformist camp uh, figures like Musavi uh, making statements more boldly more recently. But if you were to speculate, do you, do you think the, the leading figures of this, this uh, regime in Iran are um, worried uh, at present or feeling like they, as I said before, can play by their old playbook in Auburn, et cetera, of continuing to crack down and, and you know, get themselves through this? Well, as we know from the Black Reward, um, you know, leak from uh, last year, is that top IRGC officials are very much concerned about the protests, and they do regard the protests as a veritable threat to the regime because, you know, the once protests, you know, engulf various social classes as opposed to the past, this really becomes, this is the missing link that is that is there now. Mm. But for the revolutionary process to become, uh, you know, successful, we would need both a quantitative and a qualitative expansion. Qu quantitative expansion means that 
we would really need more people in the streets because this would also uh, you know, uh, motivate other people to join them. And once we have a critical mass, it is really difficult even for a brutal regime like the Islamic Republic to crack down on hundreds of thousands, if not more, people. Secondly, the qualitative expansion means that we'd probably need more permanent strikes from the labor movement. But this is the labor movement is extremely, you know, uh, courageous and is doing a lot. Uh, but it also lacks economic resources, perhaps to sustain, you know, longer periods of strikes. When it comes to, uh, you know, fissures within uh, the regime, I think uh, the execution earlier this year of the former, um, you know, deputy defense minister shows that there is some, you know, problems within uh, also regime insiders. And also Khamenei, the supreme leader, replacing uh, both uh, the police chief, but also uh, the governor of the province of Tehran, uh, who is now an RGC commander, signals that also in terms of the security architecture, there are problems. Although mm -hmm. the security architecture, there has been heavily, heavy investment in it after 2009 uh, Green Movement, precisely with the aim to quell street protests. Ali, let me shift slightly from the from inside Iran to outside Iran. I mean, the revolution seems to be there's parallel tracks. There's what's most importantly happening inside Iran, but there is, of course, this massive diaspora that is in play. And, and you've spoken before about the learning curve that has led to this moment where the young people of Iran understand that reform of this regime is no longer possible, uh, never was possible, but they really get that now and are fighting for complete change. There's also a sentiment that seeing this revolution through requires the unification of opposition both in iran and particularly across the diaspora as well and that is something that uh despite the fabulous demonstrations in places like toronto and la and the huge one in october in the city that you're in and in berlin um we've seen that that, that unification has not entirely taken place we we see bickering we see disagreement we see partisanship in in opposition camps does that concern you or are we on track somehow well, first of all, I think we have to note that there is um, unprecedented, unprecedented unity within Iranians, both inside and outside of the country. There is a paradigm shift uh, in both spheres that, as you said, reform is no more possible. So this is a huge, uh, you know, uh, accomplishment, basically. And then, of course, we had the so-called opposition coalition around the turn of the year being, you know, pro proclaimed. You know, sorry, sorry, sorry. Days. Let me just let me just uh, underscore that point. It's a, it's an it's a good one. It's an important one because we don't often uh, talk about that enough. Um, we, we when we speak about disunity, we t tend to talk about different personalities or uh, you know people canceling each other on the internet or whatever. But you 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 make an important point. The 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 major seeds of opposition disunity um, over the last few years, decades, have been whether to attempt to think we can there can be reform of this regime or whether there should be an entire regime change, an explosion, a, an implosion, a revolution, etc. Uh, what you're pointing out is that's no longer that that division no longer exists. No one is credibly making the case for reform anymore, and that's a huge underscoring of unity you're arguing absolutely and uh, i mean you, you talked earlier about the regime uh, and about the reformists you know stepping in but no one will buy the, you know buy buy them anymore there is no more legitimacy i mean Khatami last year said that 
well, there is some lip service. I mean, he paid some lip service to the Zanzendegi Azadi movement, but then warned that, you know, people should be aware not to lose, you know, their, uh, their security, uh, in, you know, in, in, in the fight for freedom. And also, Musavi's recent statement is very, very late. Um, and also, this is also lip service. And there's no radical no to the radical rejection of the Islamic Republic. Yes, and yes, so there is a paradigm shift here. Yes, but uh, you were so then I cut you off. You were going to talk about that. Despite that, I was I was asking you about the whether you're concerned about disagreements in the in the diaspora around different opposition leaders, etc. Well, I think uh, the formation of the uh, so-called coalition, although I mean it's not a de facto coalition, but it's a semblance of uh, you know prominent figures outside of the country, mostly in North America, but also in Europe, is a good is a good step forward. And uh, so it also, uh, this is some kind of a unity coming, uh, you know, in exile, um, in the wake of unity, you know, formed by Iranians inside the country. Uh, but, uh, and, and, and this can be a strong voice to the international community in, uh, you know, relaying messages, uh, political messages and uh, policy demands. So this is a good, uh, you know, platform. Uh, but more recently, the whole debate about, you know, uh, the former Crown Princess Reza Pahlavi, you know, getting some kind of political, uh, you know, sp- uh, mandate is quite nonsensical because, I mean, first of all, it has no, uh, you know, political meaning whatsoever. And it uh, did create some uh, discord, uh, which is totally, uh, you know, uh, not useful. And uh, it would, you know, uh, it would be good for him to, you know, to say something about this issue because it's not really helpful. But nevertheless, I think... um, you don't uh, think so he, you is, don't think he did. You don't think he sort of addressed that by saying, "Come on, we should all unify and be on the same page." Well, I mean, the message is important. If if the message is understood by the majority of Iranians, that's fine. If it's not understood, then uh, there is you know need for some more efforts. It seems. Let me let me ask you about international reaction and action and with the disclaimer that nobody's arguing here that we want the u.s to come and save us etc but but i i started the show today ali with a little essay about how president biden didn't even mention the word iran in his 72 minute 72 minutes you know state of of the union speech two nights ago uh, we've seen the canadian government equivocating despite saying all the right things about um they've been equivocating about putting the irgc on the terrorist list and of course where you are uh, in europe we've seen european countries not close their embassies not call back ambassadors not have an appetite to put the irgc on the terrorist list is the international community still somehow hedging its bets or maybe even worse waiting for the revolution to fail and comfortably wanting to not dismiss relations with a dictatorship for for business reasons well i think that the western countries at first thought that the protests in iran gonna be uh, crushed uh, quite soon as uh, during the last time so during the day protests and also the Aban protests the regime could uh, crush it uh, within uh, one or two or three weeks so the expectation was the same, but then the realization was a different one that actually uh, there was some longevity here, there was some persistence, and this time around the story was probably a different one. So some uh, elements within the policy circles uh, started to understand that maybe something is different, but still there is a lot of confusion here because it was at a time, you know, the protest started when 
the Western countries wanted to revive the nuclear deal. And um, so on the nuclear deal and on this, you know, aim, um, you know, they still have this aim, but they do understand that it's difficult to sell it publicly because the regime has lost uh, a lot of, you know, all of its legitimacy. And they also do understand that, you know, reform is a, you know, is an illusion within the system. So all of that they do understand, but there is still a lot of reluctance and some policy circles still believe that we may sit uh, down and talk with the Islamic Republic sooner or later to revive the nuclear deal in order to, uh, you know, to prevent Iran from acquiring uh, a nuclear weapon. But, I mean, would you agree, Gilda Sahibi, a political scientist, was on the show on Monday, and her, who's also in Germany, and, you know, she basically said, look, these European nations, what they want is, quote-unquote, stability in Iran, in the region, and what that de facto means is um, we'll, we'll tolerate, we'll even enable a dictatorship if it means that they're not going to cause trouble. Uh, there won't be any trouble. The you know the proverbial trains will run on time so that we can continue our business. Is that the way you see it? It's quite a cynical view, but I mean, is that basically what's going on? Well, true, uh, and uh, but but the real issue is that Iran is no more stable since five years. You know, uh, you cannot have more frequent and more radical protests, and you know the 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 the, the, the stop the uh, you know blocking of the internet, which has huge economic costs and all the rest within a stable country. So the reality of the matter is Iran is no more a stable country for, you know, for, for before September. But when it comes, um, you know, when it comes, for instance, to the issue of, uh, you know, the EU putting the RGC on their terrorism list, uh, there is some, uh, you know, uh, reluctance here and, um, and they haven't done that. And also uh, the sanctions that the Europeans have imposed on Iran have been quite modest. Because um, you know they they still uh, want to leave the path open for a possible uh, reopening of negotiations, and um, although um, you know putting the RGC on the terrorism list would have two major uh, you know advantages in my view. One, it would send a signal to the protest movement in Iran at a time when um, there is a kind of stalemate between the regimes and the protesters' side because neither can over, uh, can overwhelm the other. Mm. No side can overwhelm the other, and it would you know uh, bring uh, new breath into the movement. Uh, you know, Iranian society understanding that the West is you know really changing course. Uh, in its policies is no more, you know, uh, reluctant to uh, put pressure on the Islamic Republic, like in the past, is no more seeking engagement. Secondly, and this comes back to uh, the, the point that we discussed earlier, earlier, which is about possible rifts within the regime elites. Putting the RGC on the terrorism, li- the terrorism list would also signal to, p- to people inside the regime and the RGC that the, re- that the system has no more future. And so it has quite important, uh, you know, uh, in my view, advantages. But the kinds of threats emanating from Tehran have also, uh, you know, uh, have uh, had also their kind of, uh, uh, you know, had also lead to some uh, reluctance in Europe. But have those threats ever? Have those threats ever amounted to anything? I mean, we're going to come and get you, Sweden. I mean, what 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 do those threats really mean? 
Exactly. I mean, if, if we look back at, uh, you know, um, the, the U.S. Uh, putting uh, the RGC on the foreign terrorist uh, organization list, we see that the retaliation from Tehran is uh, was to put the CENTCOM, which is, you know, uh, the regional uh, military arm of the United States, uh, on the Iranian terrorism list. But the consequence was n not really escalation, as a lot of observers had feared, but because of the fact that Iran, you know, the Islamic Republic is not suicidal. They, they're not going to escalate uh, to a point where they're going to risk a, a full-blown war uh, involving uh, Israel and the United States and in its wake probably also Europe, which they're going to lose and which going to imperil uh, regime survival. Uh, so, so the kinds of, uh, you know, threats emanating from Iran, you have to really, you know, not take them at face value, but, uh, you know, just uh, look at uh, look at the past, look at the consequences of the U.S. terrorism listing. Mm -hmm. And the consequences were, were not as harsh as many had feared. If you were to put your, if you were to put a cap on as the speechwriter and the uh, one of the the the, the analysts and and uh, inner circle of of the Biden administration, explain to me why in a speech that uh, talks about democracy and freedom and mentions, uh, albeit not, it was relatively short on foreign policy, but still mentioned Ukraine, still mentioned China, etc. Um, not one mention of Iran. Uh, two days after the symbolic gesture of Dr. Jill Biden, his wife giving Shervin a Grammy, you know, why do you think there would be no mention at all of what's going on in Iran? Because there is this confusion, and uh, you know that Washington still uh, thinks that they may again go back to the negotiating table with the, with Iran. Uh, but this also pertains to the kind of geopolitical and foreign policy thinking in, in the Biden administration. And the Biden administration was uh, quite weak in dealing with Iran over the past few years because this has been, you know, the kind of perception from Tehran. This is why Tehran had escalated their, its nuclear program precisely based on the belief that there are going to be no consequences whatsoever. Mm. Uh, from, uh, you know, the United States. And also uh, what the Biden administration has failed is to put pressure on China to implement the kind of sanctions regime that is still on paper. But uh, when it comes to Iranian oil exports to uh, China, mm -hmm. but what they recently did is to putting uh, to put pressure on the Iraqi government in terms of, uh, you know, U.S. dollars reaching Iran. But and, you, but you, but you don't keep pushing the JCPOA if you actually believe there's there's a revolution happening. Uh, it seems to me that the Western leaders haven't caught up to the the Iranian people, and at least those of us in the diaspora, the majority by every metric, who who believe change is necessary and change is coming and change is going to happen and there's no stopping it because they're still kind of talking as if this is, you know. 2010 and we're and you know John Kerry's going to negotiate a, a a new deal over the next few years and and it feels like that's history like what do you got what, what's happening here um, un, unless you go into a, a mu even more cynical place of saying they 
they actively really want this regime to stay in power and, and there's an argument for that i suppose can i can i just uh, i know i don't have i don't have you forever so you mentioned uh, china and I, and it gives me a an opening to uh, as, a, as a as a segue i don't know if you can do this it's been very confusing for me to try and figure out what's happening with russia and china vis-a-vis iran if you were to try to explain this in an elementary way for people like me as simply as possible what is the role of china and russia currently in keeping the islamic republic regime in power both powers are uh, using and abusing uh, the weakness of the islamic republic and the dependence that tehran feels vis-a-vis both moscow and beijing as a kind of outside guarantor of survival uh, you know, Iran has signed a 25-year agreement with the Chinese, is planning to sign a 20-year uh, agreement with the Russians, the contents of which we don't know. So there is wild speculation that the regime has engaged in, uh, in a sellout of natural resources and, uh, and natural resources and granting, for instance, energy rights uh, to uh, Russia in the Caspian Sea and to China in the Persian Gulf. So both uh, China and Russia are somehow happy uh, with uh, the Islamic Republic, although, of course, China uh, would like to see a uh, stable uh, Middle East as well. Uh, And uh, obviously, Tehran is a destabilizing factor, but the weakness of the Islamic Republic is also can also benefit uh, is also benefiting to both uh, non-Western great powers. But China also wants relations with the U.S., right? So if the U.S. were to put that pressure on China, China would presumably back off the oil purchases and all of that. No. Well, this is what exactly the Trump administration back then did, and uh, and no one would have expected that Iranian oil sales, as a consequence to China, would drop to zero. But in fact, they did at some point. Oh, it's so good to have you on the program. I really appreciate your insights. Let me ask you a final question. Uh, um, uh, the, the the Iranian Revolution of 1979. I'm going to exploit you as a as the political scientist, the historian side of you. Uh, it was was characterized, if I put it simply, uh, by a number of different groups coming together. Um, you know, with that intention of overthrowing the Shah of Iran. But there wasn't much of a plan after that. And of course, the revolution was co-opted by Khomeini and the Islamic formalists who went about eliminating any opposition one by one. How how do we mitigate against that this time in terms of everything from an economic plan to a rebuilding strategy? Is now the time to be, to be discussing such things? Um, rather than toppling the regime and letting the chips fall where they may? Or is this a, uh, is that kind of conversation premature in your view? No, it's not really premature, but I think it's worth noting the differences uh, between then and now. Because there was some hijacking, as you rightly point out back then. Uh, there was a lot of belief in a charismatic leader that was Khomeini, but today uh, this is no more the case. Iranians do not believe anymore in a kind of charismatic leadership that is predetermined and we're going to abuse the revolution on day one after the revolution or on day 100 or whatever so um and there's a learning curve are you here. sure the, are you sure have I, we learned I that lesson so. <laughs> i i mean i believe i mean a learning curve i'm not saying that it's 100 percent, but like relatively speaking yes and back then, there was also a, the domination of the zeitgeist, uh, which was anti-imperialist and anti-American. 
So people would not really care, you know, so much about uh, human rights, about women's rights, about even about democracy. But now, the, you know, Iranian society has very much uh, matured and modernized over four decades. So there is, so this is also an important asset now that also going to help us uh, in a potential transition period to a new, uh, you know, secular democracy. So I, you know, without, you know, giving you a precise answer to your question, I'm just pointing out that, yes, there are, in fact, in my view, important differences between now and then, and um, that, you know, that can make us a bit more hopeful. Um, but yes, um, at some point, we need some kind of, uh, you know, organiz uh, you know, leadership that can, uh, you know, step in and, uh, you know, uh, engage with the international community in the transition period. Uh, but also uh, formulate uh, political demands. I do, I do both love the idea of the lear learning curve and the evidence of it sometimes. I've pointed this out before, but it's the little things where, if you recall when a forced confession video came out of, of Tumaj, the rapper, uh, having to you know do that forced confession, the kind of thing that would normally be the atrocity porn of the internet, uh, the Iranian community around the world quickly said, don't share this, don't share this, this is the regime propaganda, and people didn't share it. It was remarkable. That That is the learning curve, and that is very inspirational. Well, I hope that uh, we ha we have a learning curve. And I mean, look at the lower classes in Iran. You know, uh, I mean, people would, would have thought that those are conservative, those are loyal to the regime, but... I mean, look at the chants that are uh, that they're uh, you know chanting. So this is also quite an important uh, development. But I'm not saying that there are no more no challenges to the to the movement. Uh, there are challenges. It's going to be a rocky road. It's going to probably be a, a longer road than people would expect. It's a you know as as people say, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So all of that is true. And uh, the geopolitical uh, environment may also not be that cons conducive. We talked about the West, but also regional states may also not want the overthrow of the Islamic Republic and, um, you know, being replaced by a democratic, uh, you know, country, uh, a secular democracy, because it would lead to domino effect uh, in a region that has the highest density of autocracies in the world. Uh, so uh, in geopolitics, also the existence of a foe is very important. There are vested interests, you know, connected to that. So, um, but then again, I think we should also point to the huge geopolitical, uh, you know, uh, advantages. 1979 was the birth of political Islam in the world. Mm. But this could be a historical, uh, uh, you know, cor uh, uh, historical uh, correctness. Corrective. Uh, by, corrective, sorry. Uh, by having a de democratic Iran, and this would pacify regional geopolitics significantly, because that would revolutionize Iranian foreign policy, uh, not only in the region but also beyond. It would have uh, tremendous, uh, you know, as uh, you know, advantages. Also, when it comes to material interests such as energy security, because under current circumstances. Uh, Iran cannot be the kind of energy, uh, you know, supplier, for instance, to Europe, uh, as, uh, you know, one might want, um, uh, or some might might want, uh, but a democratic Iran, not under sanctions, could really be, a, a not, you know, um, a very strong uh, exporter of oil again. Dr. Ali Fatullah Najad, always good to talk to you. Thank you for this. 
Thank you so much for your amazing questions and the conversation. Thank I you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Ali Fatalinejad in Berlin. And that is full time for Rook for today. Thank you. Uh, isn't he great? I really enjoy oh, having yes. him on. Yes, yes. He's so, uh, yeah. well, I, I really enjoyed he's today's a show. He's cool academic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is a cool academic, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think we, people can see, well, people will see when we put up video clips of the Zoom. Yeah. He's yes. a cool, cool guy. But uh, no, you're uh, like you would like to go to party with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that he. I, I just appreciate right there when he was. He, you know, I find it actually comforting mm. to hear from academics like yes. this, who give us a a broader uh, zoom out and give us a a broader look at this and 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 where this is headed. Because, yes. as we said during the interview, if you just kind of judge what's happening from day to day yeah. you can get panicky about well you know we're not where we were in november all of a sudden here in yes, february yes. but um but you know when he when he dates it back five years and goes here was the turning point and ever since then it's been this train chugging along that keeps growing more powerful yeah. you, you know that the end is nigh for this regime and also the the last uh, part that he was telling about the geo- geopolitical situation of iran like <laughs> sometimes I pers- me personally I forgot that Iran I- is in the middle of Middle East you know it's mm. not in the middle of like close to Switzerland of course. You know, it's in the Middle East so yeah. it we have to like uh, keep, uh, we have to be cautious about our pace toward you know uh, social freedom yes 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 it's a uh, even if even if the regime were to fall tomorrow well mm. especially if the regime were to fall mm-hmm. tomorrow you know, you know, you know. It's not just about constructing what's inside Iran. Mm. It's about dealing with the neighborhood. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, not going to exactly. be easy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Full time for Rook today. Th- thank you for for you guys out there listening to us. Uh, thank you for supporting us and sharing our content. Please do subscribe if you've not done so already. And and like I said earlier in the show, we have our Patreon page now. Uh, become a Rook member. Um, there's three tiers of Rook members. You just go to our our website, rookmedia.com to figure out how to support us. We really appreciate that. Thanks to the to the amazing team who put this show together. Um, savvy Roham, talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Ohio Marathon, and Groovy Shia. Um, thank you again. See you next Monday. Um, get out there this weekend on Saturday and wherever you are and be part of these demonstrations. We'll see you out there. Find me on Instagram at Gianco Mashi. Mizu Mashi. Don't go out if you're in the Two.